With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch, Dispatch Media, and the head of Alfredo Garcia. So, we've had a few little tech issues this morning. Um, hopefully, everything will be fine now. If it's not, um, um, I feel sorry for the oxen I will have to sacrifice. So, I've been listening to a bunch of podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, and no, not during my workouts. Um, and, uh, um, and I've been listening a little bit for how they do them as much as the content of them. And, um, notice that a lot of the better higher end, more produced podcasts sort of do what, um, AO does yeah, our, our niche legal podcast and, um, and the dispatch pod does, which, which is announce at the beginning, the stuff that's coming at the end, um, sort of like, uh, you know, the, I listen to the intelligence podcast from the economist most mornings and there it's, it's counterintuitive for, um, print journalism kind of thing where they begin the, the, their lead is what comes later. And they'll say in Japan, people lick these frogs for the aphrodisiac, yada, yada, yada. And uh, at the IMF, they are deciding whether or not to convert to Quatlus. And, um, but first, events in Ukraine. And then they'll, they'll do the main story, but they'll have introed the second and third stories first. Um, and I, it makes sense for the listener because you're like, oh, I'm not interested in the thing they're talking about at first, but I'm going to stick around because I want to hear the other stuff. And I was thinking it'd be good for me to do that on the regular remnant, it would require sort of recording the intro at the end, which is doable and has been done before, but it's like literally, it's not literally impossible, but it is, is, is not simply figuratively impossible for me to do it on this because I, I, I don't know the things I'm going to talk about until I get to them. And I guess I, you know, Yes, I could be more professional and I could figure them all out the night before and have little research packets with them. But this is not the life I have chosen. And so, um, and I, I was tempted with like promising stuff up front as a way to force me to like change topics as I go and to have a little more discipline because you can't like say, you know, um, and coming up my, uh, outside the box take on the Byzantine empire and then not get to it. Right. So like, you know, you can lay a little marker for yourself and 
force yourself. It's sort of like I do this sometimes. Uh, there's some pundits who like do it more often. Um, some politicians do this too, where like they'll say, like Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich were good at this, where they would say like, I have five things I want to say to you today when they would go out in front of an audience. And when they first went on stage, they probably only knew two of them in their head. And, but they figured by the time they got to three, four, five, they could figure them out. Um, and I'll do that sometimes where I'll have, I'll say something like, I have three points to make out that, about that. And I just, usually I'll have two in my head, but I, I, I figure I'll have a third one um, that emerges as an emergent property, as it were, from the spontaneous order, um, simply by the, by, by the dint of working through the first two. Um, if you haven't figured it out yet, this is basically what they, what would might call throat clearing as I try to figure out how to get going. Um, but do, do stick around for my really fascinating, um, all vegan recipes for baked Alaska. Um, um, where begin? So let's, let's begin like not with some earth shattering stuff, but uh, big deal for me. And I think big deal for a lot of people, uh, by the time this comes out, uh, it, he, he may have made it official, but it, um, I, I'm, I'm confident that the reports are true that Ben Sass, friend of this podcast, um, is leaving the Senate to go, um, become the president of, um, the university of Florida or Florida university or, or, or I think it's university of Florida, whatever. Um, I'm happy for him. I'm sure it'll make his life happier. Um, it's kind of sad to me. Um, insofar as, you know, he is probably Ben Sass is probably as much as any politician, certainly any politician I've known personally. Um, but maybe as much as any politician in my adult lifetime, I thought he kind of had what it would take to be, um, a kind of president I could get sort of starry eyed about. I mean, other than of course, Mitch Daniels. Um, and, uh, and he's just an incredibly decent and perceptive and smart guy. And, um, and he loves his family and this, all this has been very hard on him and all that kind of stuff. Um, he has been kind of MIA in the Senate, as far as I can tell publicly. I know he likes to spend a lot of time in skiffs reading about China things and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I wish that he had done more on the, he, he is so good at diagnosing the problems on the Senate, but he is in our politics generally. I wish he had done more on the sort of legislative front to deal with some of those, even if it was like rules committee or whatever they call it in the Senate kind of, uh, reforms within, I think, you know, there are lots of institutional and political impediments to him being able to do that. Um, but, um, I think, you know, the, the, the ranks of decent high IQ senators has plummeted, uh, far more than, um, the, the numerical, uh, 1% that he, he represented. And, um, I think it's a real loss. What I, what I, I just can't get my head around is the sort of vitriol and nastiness that has come from some of the sort of, uh, you know, purer than thou 
never Trump types. I mean, Tim Miller, who I like a lot, he's a bulwark guy, um, worked for Jeb, was really crazy snarky about how um, Ben Sass failed to do what was right for the country when it, the moment called for him and it called for it. And, um, and I just don't get, you know, I, I, I think that it is just foolish politics and, and, um, and a sign that you're sort of pr- too deep in the bunker, um, to be honest. Um, and, uh, yeah, would, would I have preferred it? Would I have gone shouted, go Ben go if, if Sass had given more anti-Trump speeches and all that kind of stuff for sure. But the guy voted for impeachment. Um, the guy refused to play Trump's games. Um, and so long as he was in the Senate, you know, and I, I'm speaking here just as, as, as a matter of my own punditry, not, you know, from any particular conversations I've had with Sass, um, you know, the Republican party is incredibly choppy waters. And the idea that, you know, there are a lot of people who have just, just invincible confidence about what the best way for, um, non-Trumpy Republicans to behave, um, is, uh, is weird to me, you know? I mean, like, it's difficult to figure out how to, how to navigate those waters. Um, this is why, you know, like a lot of people give me a hard time for, you know, for not being harder on, on, on Mitch McConnell. And I was pretty hard on him for not, for his refusal to vote for impeachment. And I was pretty hard on him for a bunch of things. Um, but, you know, there's a reason why Donald Trump despises Mitch McConnell and all of these paranoid freaks um, of the sort of swampy right um, have, you know, nigh upon Q-level conspiracy theories about Mitch McConnell. And it's because they don't, they're actually not playing along with the Trumpy stuff. And there is this popular front, um, you know, sort of, at, you know, sort of, ideological purity stuff that you get from some never Trump people that says that I'm a sellout that says that SAS is a sellout that says that, um, um, that unless you say the words that they want to hear, then you're part of this, you know, this corrupt apparatus. So I don't know if you guys remember, you know, but there was this whole, uh, I don't know. It was before January six, I think, um, you know, this whole silly argument, um, you know, I had this disagreement with, um, Bill Crystal and Charlie Sykes about the, this, 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 this burn it down thing about the GOP. And the gist of it was, was that there were a bunch of like people who thought, okay, the question is, do we burn down the whole GOP or do we try to reform it from within and, and save the thing? And, and, you know, who do we allow to stay and, and who do we purge? And, um, and the position that, you know, like David French and I, and, and you know, a bunch of other people took was what a weird, you know, formulation. I mean, it was sort of like, um, you know, protesters at Berkeley in the sixties saying, you know, during a sit-in at the cafeteria, you know, do we man, do we demand longer library hours? Or do we go all the way and call for a complete withdrawal from Indochina? Um, it's like, 
the full universe of never Trump types, you know, which I include myself in and, and, you know, even include most of the national review. I'm talking about, you know, anti-Trump most broadly defined. Um, I don't have power to burn down the GOP. And so it's sort of a, it was sort of an abstract dorm room kind of conversation to begin with, unless you actually believed you had that power. And then in case it was a delusional conversation. Um, but, uh, you know, that crowd, you know, the Tim Miller crowd was hating on Liz Cheney right up until January 7. Um, and, you know, Liz, there are, there are a lot of people in the Republican Party and and I, I think my credentials for being critical of the Republican Party are pretty solid. Um, there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who are not bad people. And I mean, I'm talking about the elected, you know, people on the Hill who get all this grief for not being anti-Trump enough. Um, they're not bad people. You know, they're not all Jim Jordans and Marjorie Taylor Greens. Um, a lot of them are what I've been calling for a long time closet normals. Um, and they are trying to figure out with a lot of rationalizations and self-serving sort of, um, uh, you know, thumb on the scale analysis, how to do what's right um, and what their sort of breaking points were. And, you know, the, the, the funny thing about Liz Cheney is that Liz, and I, I can talk about this in a second, but like, Liz was a go-along, work from the inside, make compromises, criticize Trump when you have to, um, but, uh, you know, don't rock the boat too much type until January 6th. And then January 6th was, for her, such a Rubicon that there was no going back. And I have nothing but admiration for her for making that decision. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of people who are sort of of that same calculation. I think they're wrong um, on this issue or that issue. But this, you know, this sort of unifying thing among anti-Trump, of a certain breed of anti-Trump people on the left and the right, um, to assume that everyone's motives are pure cowardice and cynicism if they don't follow the script that they want them to, I just find really tiresome and really unpersuasive. Um, and the idea that like Ben Sass is the guy who deserves to be, um, uh, you know, torn down, uh, you know, demonized, ridiculed, um, for his behavior over the last six, seven, seven years. Um, it just feels very sort of 1960s left wing kind of thinking to me, you know, I mean, the, the, the serious left in the 1960s, the angry left in the 1960s spent very little time attacking conservatives. They attacked mostly liberals. They hated the people closest to them ideologically um, for all sorts of complicated psychological and tactical and strategic and political science reasons, which I find fascinating. We can get into sometime. But my only point is, is that like uh, the, the, the thing that seems to bother a lot of the most ardent never Trump people is that if you're only 80% never Trump or 70% never Trump, um, that's more infuriating than, um, being 100% pro Trump. 
And I think there are interesting psychological things. There are actually, you know, we'll talk about one of them because um, I wrote about it earlier this week with um, um, with my LA Times column, which is also up at the Dispatch, um, about Putin. You know, and this is something I, in my underrated second book, uh, Tyranny and Clichés, I talk about, um, I have a chapter on. Um, this, there's this idea that understanding is um, the, the key to preserving peace and, um, um, and nonviolence, right? You know, you know, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Um, that if, you know, if we could just, if we could just all understand each other, if the Russians love their children too, um, um, that whole sort of mindset that says, you know, if we can just get the Crips and the Bloods to, to, to meet on neutral territory and have a conversation, everything will be okay. Um, and I'm not saying there's no truth to that. There's a lot of truth, certainly on the interpersonal level like in your own life, that misunderstanding leads to conflict. It, there's a, it's a lot of, just Google misunderstanding leads to conflict. There's an enormous amount of psychological literature on this. And I think it's true that misunderstanding can lead to conflict. Like if you, like in, I've had a lot, had to deal with a lot of like business stuff of late where people are pretty dug in on one position or another position. And then you actually reach out and ask for what's really going on. And it turns out there was a misunderstanding about this, that, or the other thing. And, and it's all workoutable. So like, absolutely true. The problem is, is that this is one of these great examples of how what is true in your own life, or maybe even true among small groups, um, doesn't necessarily scale to the global or national level. Um, and um, Sigmund Freud building on the work of, I can't remember his name, but somebody else uh, was the guy who coined the term, the, the narcissism of small differences. And um, narcissism of small differences also works on, on the very small level as on the, on the small scale level as well. But um, in matters of, of sort of military conflict and in, in, in national conflict and tribal conflict, it is a hugely important concept to understand. If you think about the, um, the bloodiest, most intractable conflicts of the last, I don't know, 5,000 years, um, virtually all of them are between groups that understand each other pretty damn well. Um, I shouldn't say virtually all of them. The vast majority of them are, gr are between groups that have more similarities um, than differences. Uh, Irish Catholics and Protestant Catholics, Jews, uh, Israelis and Palestinians, uh, Turks and Cypriots, Turks and Armenians, uh, um, you know, uh, all that hundred years war stuff, right? Um, um, the, the, you know, the, the genocides in Rwanda, um, even you know, Freud makes this point about Jews is that one of the reasons why Jews, um, wh why you get anti-Semitism all over the place is that Jews are remarkably capable of um, succeeding and thriving in different cultures and they become major co contributors to those cultures. The most sophisticated, educated, successful Jews in the world were German Jews. And it was because 
they were so good at being Germans that uh, Germans started to hate and resent them. Um, I've talked a bunch of times here about, uh, you know, uh, shibboleths and their role in things and how these small tells or ways are ways that tell, you know, groups that are very similar to each other apart. Uh, and I probably mentioned this before, but, you know, at my brother, at my brother's funeral, when uh, my, um, or I should say at the, when we were, you know, at the mausoleum or whatever, um, his wife's family, um, who were mostly from Haiti or of Haitian descent, uh, they all brought flowers. And it was a sweet and nice thing to do. And I don't begrudge them at all for it. But like there was this, we had this great rabbi and he was just, he, he took it upon himself to go over to the, the, um, to my brother-in-law's widow's family and, uh, say, you know, Hey, you know, Jews don't do flowers. And, um, he says, but you know what? We did flowers first. Said that, you know, originally in sort of ancient times, Jews were, um, they use flowers at burials all the time, but then the Christians started to do it. And the Jews being determined to not be confused for Christians said, okay, if you're going to do flowers, we're going to do rocks. We're just not going to go that way. And, um, if somebody knows, I I've read it before. There's a term in, in sociology for this. I don't know if it's oppositional culture or whatever or something, but there's a term for this desire to express differentiation that way. So anyway, the, you know, Putin, if you read his various scribblings about um, about Ukraine, he's got a little bit of a point. Not a huge point, but he's got a point, right? I mean, there's an argument that Russia sort of begins in Kiev. There's an argument that Russia and, and, and Ukraine are sort of, you know, the same people and the same country and all that kind of stuff, or at least they once were. And I am not justifying Putin's or trying to justify Putin's um, invasion of Ukraine in any way, shape, or form. All I'm saying is that these two cultures go way back together, and they understand each other really, really, really well. Um, um, Ukrainians understand Russians. Russians understand Ukrainians better than we understand either, and and they're in a just a, the ugliest of fights, right? So clearly, understanding alone does not do the trick. And in fact, understanding is often the thing that makes people fight is because they share so much um, in common. And then there's some key difference that uh, is the sort of defining issue of the time that when the other, when it's like when a member of your family, you know, takes the wrong side on some incredibly important question, um, it feels like a betrayal. And that's why, you know, uh, I think it's Russell Jacobi uh, in his book, Bloodlust, uh, he writes about this, that there's, um, that civil wars are almost always the bloodiest and cruelest because that sense of betrayal, like, you know, only one faction gets to decide how we're going to be defined as us in the future. And that's why the civil war in the United States was so ugly, right? Where you literally had brothers fighting against brothers. Um, you had families that were torn apart, um, because there was this one fundamental vision that, uh, was zero sum and either you're this on 
team South or team North. And if you're on the other team, you've betrayed what, what we stand for or whatever, or what we think we stand for. And, and so anyway, I bring this up in part because I think it's interesting. Um, um, you know, the countries that have the, um, have the longest record of peace between them tend to be a pretty far apart. Um, and B, uh, really don't know Jack about each other. (laughs) You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know to date how many, um, fights have there been between, um, I don't know, uh, Spain and Sweden, you know, not a lot, at least not recently, not since the Spanish Armada or between, um, I don't know, uh, you know, Moldova and Car- and Caracas. That's not a country, right? Or you can tell how tired I am. Or Argentina, right? My point is, is like, it's just not, um, uh, like, lack of understanding is not necessarily, I know we all like the science fiction movies where it's like, for, if first contact goes badly, we'll be at war with the Klingons for a century. But it's not really necessarily how it works. and. Um, and I think that there's a similarity to this in American intellectual history and political history, which is that the, the groups that are most similar, that share the most in terms of their overall outlook tend to be the nastiest to each other. Um, because there's sort of a, it's a battle for identity. It's a battle for the identity and the, and the, and status, right, among a small group of people, and and you know, it's it's the, the narcissism of small differences is the is classically attributed to um, faculty debates on universities. You know, and the old joke is is that the um, the knives are so big because the stakes are so small, um, but it gets at something, right? I mean, there's, there's a reason why, like, um, you know, the Policy and economics departments fight with the sociology department, which fights with the English department. And these are all people who all basically agree with each other on the big questions, but damn it, these parking spaces are important. Anyway, I think that's some of what's going on with this sort of piling on on Ben Sass from the, the, the Tim Miller crowd. And I, and I just don't buy it. And I think it's kind of sad. What else to talk about? Oh, so I've been working on, well, I haven't working on, I've been, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out, I give this speech almost every year, um, in Dallas. It's not really open to the public. Um, it's the, I don't control the mailing, the invite list for it. Um, and I got, got it coming up and it matters to me for all sorts of reasons. Um, in part because I'm, I, I love the people who invite me. Um, and it's always got to be weird and funny and different and not just sort of simple punditry. And, you know, my standard joke about this is I've gotten myself into this place where I, I often get introduced. I know you may not believe it on this podcast, but I can give a funny speech. Um, um, I usually get introduced as this like funny guy, um, who has smart things to say about politics. And I always beg the hosts or the sponsors to not build me up as the funny guy, because if if you go in expecting me to be like a comedian, I'm going to disappoint you. 
if you go in expecting me to be like David Broder, you're going to laugh your ass off because like I'm, I'm for a pundit. I'm funny for a comedian. I'm a good, I have smart political analysis. And, um, but anyway, it makes this, this setup, which I get, there are a couple of important speeches I do every year where like, I, I'm, I'm really got to nail that. Another one is at this AI event every year. And I always joke that I feel like the guy who's wants to be both a taxidermist and a veterinarian, um, because that way, um, he can promise that you'll get your dog back no matter what. Um, it's just a hard thing to square. And so I've been trying to think about like, what are sort of G file ish kind of topics that are weird, but also on the news that I can write about or that I can talk about that I haven't talked about before. Um, and I just haven't figured it out yet. If you have some ideas of like themes that I've been working on, um, um, that you'd like me to hear me flesh out sometime, let me know. Um, shoot me an email, Jonah at the dispatch. Um, so like one thing I've been thinking about is I don't think I'm going to do this is the only reason why I'm talking about it here. Um, is, um, so my wife and I, we just finished watching all what five seasons of breaking bad, um, which obviously I'd seen before I wrote a cover story for national review calling it the best show on television. Um, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. Um, I just talked about it recently on glop with Rob Long. Um, I, uh, and we can talk about the, the interesting insights I had about it another time um, in terms of like the show. But like w one thought that came to mind was it's interesting, you know, uh, there's not a new insight, but like part of the secret of Walt's success as a drug Lord is he's basically got this superpower, which is um, being very smart and good at science and, and all of that. Um, and the thing is, is like, and this is where I, I sort of get off the reservation um, with the point I'm trying to make. Is that everybody knows that, right? That's sort of like, that's not the subtext. That's the text of the show. But longtime listeners have heard me rant about bourgeois values a zillion times, right? This is a big part of my book, Suicide the West, is that... Um, Bourgeois values, uh, the Protestant work ethic, however you want to put it, these things are sort of keys to success in life and not just success in business or success um, financially, but success in terms of character formation. Um, the ability to delay gratification, uh, believing that working hard is its own reward um, honest dealings, punctuality, all of these, you know, like little things and big things that define a reliable person and a person of integrity. Um, if you're a person of integrity, uh, broadly defined to include all that kind of stuff, honesty, fidelity, loyalty, hard work, you know, thrift, yada, 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 um, you're going to do okay in life. You may not be rich, but you're not going to be poor. Um, um, you're not going to be poor, at least in the ways that matter, right? Um, because part of that is also the, the, that kind of character is its own reward. Um, and anyway, what is interesting to me about Breaking Bad is that that's who, who Walter White was, was he was hardworking, decent man, family man, honest man. And 
it was only through being those things that he had this superpower that turned out to be very useful for being a drug lord. Um, and I, I'm being a little metaphorical or maybe a lot metaphorical here. So just cut me a little slack because I, I haven't really talked this through. I'm just thinking out loud about this. Um, and so anyway, it, you know, part of the point of the piece I wrote 10 years ago was, was on the nature of evil and how Walter White becomes evil. And this was also, this is just text, right? This is like Vince Gilligan says, um, um, in interviews that, you know, he wanted to do a show about how Mr. Chips becomes Scarface, right? And, and one of the things that, you know, I emphasize in the piece was how arrogance, the arrogance of intellect um, is the, the key driver towards uh, evil for him is, um, you know, it makes him think that everything is a solvable problem. And once you, abandon conventional morality for the everything is moral if it helps my family kind of thing, you get yourself on this slippery slope where um, you're willing to do anything um, that aids your project to the point where you actually start harming your family as well because the project takes over. It's, it's, it's very Tolkien-esque. It's like the ring overwhelms and corrupts. And, um, anyway, none of this is particularly insightful except for like, it got me thinking about the danger that is posed when people who went through the right process of sort of bourgeois values to attain success, to attain, um, wealth, expertise and all that kind of stuff. And some switch goes off in their head. And, um, they can now use that ability for evil. And I think that this is one of the things that explains a lot about a certain kind of totalitarianism and a certain kind of, uh, threat to democracy in general. Um, the, you know, the idiot goon, you know, white supremacist guys, they're not a huge threat to the United States of America. They're just not, you know, look, anybody who commits violence should go to jail. I don't like these people. Um, um, but the only way in which, you know, the proud boys and the representers or the, all these people, I can't keep track of them. Um, Oath keepers. Uh, the only way they become more than in effect, a criminal nuisance. And I'm, I'm not trying to downplay the violence and the bad things that they can do, but like, they're a criminal nuisance to the integrity and, and longevity of the United States government until and unless somebody very smart from within the ranks of conventional politics or business starts directing them, right? When they become shock troops for somebody um, more mainstream, uh, that's a different thing. And we got a, we got a window into that on January 6th. And, um, this is, you know, like the original brown shirts were a bunch of street thugs. Uh, but the, when they got sort of co-opted into a more sophisticated organization, they became more dangerous. Um, and this is true of basically almost every politically violent, um, street organization throughout 
history as far as I'm aware, right, is that it takes leadership from a much higher level um, that sort of understands where the pressure points are in the system for these groups to be anything other than nuisances. Um, and so anyway, it, 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 if you think about it in terms of, you know, the Nazis who were conventional, objectively probably pretty decent people, 10 years, you know, in the 19, early 1920s, who got switched on, red-pilled, whatever you want to call it, to an evil ideology, and it took over them and it corrupted them. Um, you can kind of see, I, maybe, I don't know, maybe I can kind of see what I'm getting at. Um, and again, I'm not saying that Rudy Giuliani is a Nazi. I think Rudy Giuliani is a drunk and, and, a, and, a, and, a, um, and a sad old man who's, who, who blew away, who, who pissed away a lifetime of important accomplishments and integrity for a lot of stupid crap. But um, you can see how, like, you know, Rudy Giuliani, um, Michael Flynn, these guys who acquired skills, set, skills, um, knowledge, expertise, um, um, in pursuit of doing good and righteous things for a long time, and then something goes on with them, and all of a sudden, uh, they become vastly more dangerous because they're giving over their abilities, their superpowers, as it were, to, um, if evil bothers you too much, fine, um, a very bad project, very dangerous project. And um, I always thought, you know, like the Hydra stuff in Marvel movies was particularly stupid because, like, part of the point is, you know, part of one of the lessons you learn in life is that most, not all, most criminals are really stupid. That's why they're criminals. Um, being a criminal is, I'm sorry, Steve Hayes is trying to call me, um, and I shall ignore it. Um, being a criminal is um, a really dumb decision. And the only smart people who become criminals at a certain level it are... Um, um, who people feel they truly, truly have no other choice. Um, and usually they don't stay criminals for very long because they can see that, you know, crime does not, I, mean, I don't want to say it, but crime doesn't pay. Um, you do get people at the very top every now and then, you know, the Bernie Madoffs and that kind of crowd who um, are smart and how they get seduced into the criminal life is an interesting psychological story. They're usually confidence men. They're not like bank robbers, right? They're not stuff like that. But um, um, anyway, I just think it's sort of interesting that like, and a little scary, which is one of the reasons why I'm not going to do it as a speech because it's pretty friggin' dark. But like the, the threat to democracy um, comes when people who have acquired the knowledge and insights about how institutions work, about how life works, about how uh, the law works, um, give themselves over to a radical cause and they use their insider-outsider stat status as like as sort of as termites 
to undermine the system as a whole. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I'm thinking about this, I talked about this with Chris Steierwald earlier in the week. Um, you know, I get that we're in an anti-institutional mood in this country for all sorts of understandable, you know, for legitimate and illegitimate reasons. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to lose faith and trust in institutions. Um, uh, not all of them are sinister or evil. They're just objectively what are driving a lot of people. And I don't want to get into that whole argument right now, but the, um, the way the political parties have, and I, again, go listen to what I said about Starwalt. There's a lot of repeat of the stuff that Chris and I have been talking about for years on this podcast, where I've been writing about for years, but, um, there are a lot of smart people, a lot of smart people inside the Republican and Democratic parties who understand that there isn't massive voter suppression in this country and who understand that elections are not full of fraud and aren't rigged. And either they're lying when they say that these are real issues or they're staying silent while representatives of various parties go out and say these things. And they have to know this is wrong, right? They may think they ha there's nothing that they can do. They may have given themselves permission to sort of say, this is just where we are and this is what voters, our voters want to hear and this is how you get out the base and what's the big deal? You know, once we get into power, we'll do the right thing anyway and yada, yada, yada and team GOP, team Democrat, yeah, whatever. Um, the simple fact is, is that they're wrong. It's, it's one of these like tragedy of the commons things, things or collective action problems where almost all of the smart informed people inside the, the system know the right thing and just have convinced themselves not to do it or say it. And, you know, it's, it's we're completely analogous to the rise of Trump in a lot of ways. So, like, it's one thing for Republican politicians to go out there and say, look, uh, we really can't trust Anthony Fauci and we need to get to the bottom of X or Y, which I think is a legitimate position to hold. I do hope if they can do it without becoming, but without turning it into just a clown car, um, having hearings on the origins of COVID and then the NIH response, totally valid, right? That's not my point. My point is that there are some things that it's perfectly valid to sort of be sort of skeptical, populist adjacent about, you know, leading institutions. You want to reform the FBI? Go for it, right? You want to have hearings about that? Go for it. You want to impugn the motives of big tech, whatever. I think it's kind of silly, but okay, go for it, whatever. All those things are kind of fine because these are other institutions. The Republican Party and the Democratic Party have a really fundamental interest in people believing that our elections, first of all, in, in making sure that our elections are fair and, and, and above board, and also in convincing people that they're fair and above board, right? This is like, this is, you know, this is a, this is a business interest of the Republican and Democratic Party. Forget the fact that it's a patriotic obligation and a moral obligation and of all the other things. It is like just straight, out of their food bowl that they need people to believe have, and have confidence in the integrity of our election system. 
um, and both parties, as a matter of policy, crap from a great height down on um, the integrity of our election system. Whether they're claiming that there's mass-scale Jim Crow 2.0 voter suppression, which is just not true. It's just not true. And I just heard on the NPR the other day, they introed a piece about this Alabama you know, case in the Supreme Court, and the host says, um, in what may be the final coffin, final nail in the coffin of the Voting Rights Act. Um, nonsense. I, it just, it's just all nonsense. Um, getting rid of drive-through voting, um, limiting you know, uh, mail-in ballots to two weeks, all of these things, that's not Jim Crow. Right? That is not making that is not that is not making voting too difficult for for minorities. Um, and I'm not saying that there aren't you know like apparently there are places where they've closed too many polling places in certain parts of like rural the rural South. Okay, fine. That is not massive voter suppression. It's just not right. And um, it may be bad, and you may need to fix it. But nothing, you know, Jim Crow 2.0. You know, Jim Crow was about turning dogs and hoses on people to keep them from voting, right? It was about literacy tests and all these kinds of things. You know, it was, it was, it was, a, it was an absolute affront. And the point of Jim Crow wasn't to limit the black vote. The point of Jim, you know, the point of limiting the vote for Jim Crow was so that they could maintain the, the farm worse. I mean, like, how to put this? Jim Crow was about dehumanizing human beings denying them their full um, ability to have decent lives, the right to travel, the right to, you know, own property and start businesses, the right to be, to be treated with dignity um, in all sorts of places. That's what was evil about Jim Crow, right? The lynchings and the murder and, the, and all of that, that was the evil part of Jim Crow. The voter suppression of the original Jim Crow was a way to sustain all of that. And I very much doubt, like, the, the single most important thing um, as a moral matter to African Americans in the South during Jim Crow was the ability to vote. I mean, I, I know they wanted the ability to vote, and it was outrageous to deny them that, but they wanted the ability to vote to fix that other stuff. And now we, the way the Democrats talk about the, this voting stuff, where they pile lie and exaggeration upon lie and exaggeration, is to make it sound that, like, um, not being able to provide free sandwiches to people in line to vote um, is the same thing as putting fire hoses or German shepherds on them. And it's just, it's nonsense. And the same, and the, the rigged election, stolen election stuff is even crazier because it's just, it's, it's, it's so obviously just made up. I actually do believe, because I've had these arguments with people, a lot of Democrats actually do believe the voter suppression stuff. They, they really do um, think it's true or institutions that are dedicated to the belief that it is true. The, the, the Trump lie stuff, I know there are people who believe that too, but that's because they're dupes. The people at the top, the people who push this stuff, most of them know this is horseshit. They just know it. And the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have a personal interest in tamping this crap down. And they're not doing it. And I think it's disastrous um, for the country to be to be doing that, and it's disastrous for democracy as def it, like for the benefit of these two parties. It's like there's a reason why journalists 
get more worked up about the First Amendment than, say, nuclear engineers? It's because we have a business interest in the First Amendment, right? I mean, I'm in the First Amendment business, so I care about it more than, you know, a gun shop owner is going to care about the Second Amendment. I'm not saying that gun shop owners don't care about the First Amendment, but, like, the Second Amendment puts food on their table. And um, the parties depend on just the mechanics of democracy being accepted as real and legitimate. And this is, I mean, the whole reason I'm getting on this, I forgot there for a second, is like this is an example of how what happens when smart people who are formed and shaped by their institutions uh, to be good and decent, productive members of society decide essentially to use their powers for evil. And um, I think if you look around in our politics, you can see a lot of examples of this. Um, Every person who behaves like an idiot on social media just for the clicks and to heighten um, um, heighten tensions and, and all that kind of stuff, they're doing evil, right? And I think this is like the best, you know, the, now that I think about it, the sort of the Walter Whites of the um, computer engineering world are a problem, right? These people who've come up with algorithms that essentially, you know, addict 14-year-old girls to um, feeling terrible about themselves in the world, um, that's, you know, like there was a time when Google, I think, actually believed in their motto of don't, don't do evil or don't be evil. Um, and I, I think they're going to have to go back to, uh, you know, their office retreat and do some, you know, fire walks and trust falls and reacquaint themselves with that. Because I think a lot of people are turning into Walter Whites. And anyway, to be continued, it's just something that's been in my head. I'm sure there are flaws to this argument. Feel free to point them out. Just be a little kind um, if you can, because like I'm just literally thinking out loud here. Hmm. Speaking about doing evil, I should say something about this. Um, I didn't say anything at the time, part because it was Yom Kippur, and part because I got a lot of distractions in my life, which I can't talk about. But um, um. David French wrote, you know, an important um, newsletter this week about just giving people, I mean, because like, he's a friend of mine and a colleague of mine, I have a better sense of what he's subjected to on a daily basis than most normal people do, um, in part because I'm subjected to a lot of similar stuff. So I, 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 I get where he's coming from. Um, and, you know, but David is the special case. So anyway, he wrote this piece about, you know, Julie Kelly, who's a terrible human being, who um, has, does, you know, she's the woman who um, she made, made light of, made fun of uh, uh, Nancy French, David's wife's being um, uh, sexually abused by a pastor. Um, Julie Kelly is the person who called the cops on January 6th crisis actors. Um, she's part of American Greatness, which I think is a garbage site. Uh, full of garbage authors writing garbage things. And maybe it's gotten better and maybe there are a handful of people there worthy of my respect. Um, if that's the case, then they've, um, they've made a mistake working and writing for that site. Um, and uh, this <laughs> American greatness, just add a little levity here. Um, I know I've talked about this before, but damn it. I just think it's one of the funniest things ever. Um, remember when Donald Trump, did his uh, butt tweet of Kofefe, 
um, uh, American Greatness, which was uh, founded on the fundamental principle that Donald Trump's fecal matter has no malodorous content whatsoever. Um, uh, some dude, I don't remember his name, um, wrote, so I made fun of the Kofefe thing because I thought it was funny. Like a lot of people did, probably thought it was funnier than it really was, whatever, you know, but the fact that Trump couldn't admit that it was a mistake was funny. That was the president. This was early on in the Trump presidency when, um, like the whole idea of the president tweeting like an escape money monkey from a cocaine lab was itself kind of funny and weird. Anyway, so I made fun of it. Uh, I don't remember what I said about it. And this dude from American Greatness writes, uh, the, makes fun of me for making fun of it and making fun of my oh so sophisticated, you know, cynicism, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, look, I'm not saying this happened. But there's one possibility that, of course, Goldberg doesn't consider. And then he gets into this long, uh, weird theory that Kofefe, C-O-V-F-E-F-E, right, or however the nonsense word was typed, um, bears some resemblance to the Arabic word for uh, standing up or rising up or something like this. and. Of course, it doesn't occur to Goldberg that maybe what Donald Trump is doing is subtly signaling to the forces of truth and justice um, and liberty in the Arab world that he is on their side and that that he wants them to rise up against their tyrannies or something like it was like just bonkers. Um, and I always think about it because it was just like the desire to... Uh, explain away every single Trump screw up um, or mistake or misdeed um, or vile act um, as, as, as brilliant or moral um, is just one of these astounding things to me. And it, it gets to this whole point about how, um, how good people can enlist in essentially evil enterprises if they become convinced that the most important thing, the sole thing that they have to do is more important than sort of bourgeois morality stuff. And so anyway, back to David. Look, I disagree with David all the time about all sorts of things. Um, um, about very few of like profound importance, but you know, we disagree about some stuff. Um, uh, we disagree a lot about pop culture stuff, whatever. I understand that there are people with whom I disagree a great deal, um, but who are still honorable and decent people who disagree with David about some really profound things. I mean, I know people... I have friends of mine who text me every now and then and say, why is David going on about this or that or whatever? And I'm always like, because David gets to write about what he wants to write about. Um, and most of the time, I want to be clear. I, I agree with David. I'm not trying to like signal my separation from David in any way. I'm, I'm, um, I'm rising here to defend and praise David, not um, denounce him. But uh, my only point is, is that there are lots of people I respect and I know who are decent people who have real disagreements with David. I mean, Charlie Cook and David went toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe on some gun stuff recently. I have nothing but love for, for Charlie Cook, and uh, I haven't listened to it yet, but he's got a new podcast. People should listen to it. Um, um, I think what he does is he just spends the entire time saying aluminium and other weird British pronunciations, but some people love that. Um, uh, 
So my point is, I don't care if people disagree with David French. I don't care if people disagree with me. I'm in the disagreement business. This is what I do is I disagree with people. Um, that's what I know. I think this is essential to democracy. Democracy is about disagreement, not about agreement. I mean, all these are all my old hits, right? Um, but if you're the kind of person who's obsessed with David French, if you're the kind of person who has turned David French into symbol of everything that you um, dislike about this country um, or about conservatism um, or about anti-Trump people or, or, or whatever, I don't really care what category you want to put all these things in. If you are irrationally obsessed with David French, if you are constantly tweeting about David French, if you have written sort of these sort of dumb dunking articles about David French, or if you've lied about David French the way like a lot of places do, um, I'm going to immediately, and not out of any irrational calculation, but out of observed experience for the last seven years, assume you're the disordered, screwed up one. Um, the way the, there's this crowd that is obsessed with David French, he's like the Hunter Biden of their lives. And that says zero about David's integrity, David's intelligence, David's ideas, David's insights, and everything about your own uh, fan service, boo bait BS. And um, if you think that like writing about David French um, and nailing him to the wall and turning him into an avatar about whatever makes you sophisticated or important or brave or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure this people who do this stuff don't really care about my opinion and that's fine. But to the extent I can persuade anybody, I would like most people to work from the assumption that this is them telling on themselves about what unserious idiotic people they are. Um, uh, I love that David French works for the dispatch. I love that David French is a friend of mine. I want him to be important and the topic of conversation because I think he says smart and important things. But if you think that like the path to a post-liberal integralist nationalist order where all our enemies are punished, um, if you think step one in that process is dethroning or owning David French in some way, um, and then step two is question mark, question mark, question mark. And step three is total victory. You're a moron. And, you know, it's just one of these things that like, if I hear you talking about it, I know I don't have to take you seriously as a person. And I mean this quite seriously. Like, um, the more obsessed you are with David French, the more unserious a person you are, the more inclined you are to take cheap, stupid shots at David or lie about David, the more clear it is to me that you are among the lowest forms of, you know, one of, uh, one of the most lowest strata or coprophagic phyla of, of, of the right-wing ecosystem. And I find it kind of fascinating and grotesque at the same time. And anyway, you should read what he wrote. I guarantee you, I can promise you from, um, uh, from firsthand knowledge that like he just, he's giving you just a taste of the crap he's had to put up with for the last seven years. And the fact that he remains such a decent, funny, um, um, honest, open-hearted, and, and I, I mean this sincerely, Christian guy is a testament to his integrity and his character and, and a really damning uh, comment on 
his most ardent critics. Um, anyway, I just, I've been meaning to say something about it. Um, uh, and I didn't mean to get so worked up about it, but I just, I, it's, it's just, it's such a weird thing to me. I kind of feel the same way about Mitch McConnell too. No, Mitch McConnell's not like David French, but like there is something about Mitch McConnell that people obsess over beyond all reason. And so I thought it was hilarious. I, I think I talked about this a little on the dispatch podcast. Um, where, uh, What was, oh, the Herschel Walker stuff, right? The Herschel Walker stuff comes out and a bunch of people, I think, I think the reason I noticed it was because like maybe Mitch McConnell was trending with Herschel Walker for a little bit on Twitter. And there were all these people saying, oh, this is, this is, this is totally Mitch McConnell trying to take out Herschel Walker. And I don't know how else to say this other than the fact that that's stupid. Um, like, if you're making a movie and you about like American politics today and you cast someone in the Mitch McConnell role, um, that actor would not have to ask more than once of the director, what's my motivation? Because Mitch McConnell's motivations are so transparent. He wants the Republicans to take back the Senate. He wants to be majority leader. Um, and the reason why he wants to be majority leader is one, he likes being majority leader and he's an institutionalist. But two, because he is a stone's throw away from uh, of breaking the all-time record for uh, majority leader. He's already broken the Republican record. You beat uh, Bob Dole, I think, um, beat his record last time he was in the majority leader. And he's coming up, I think, is it Mansfield? It's the guy who was like from 60 to 77 or something like that. Anyway, he's close to breaking the all-time record. And that's what he wants to do. And then there are a lot of people I know in, in McConnell world that say he might not even finish his term if he does it because he just wants to break the record and retire and stop putting up with this crap. Um, um, I'm not, I'm not really trying to report that as news. It's just that, like, but like, he's an institutionalist. He wants what's good for the Senate. He wants what's good for the Senate GOP. Um, he wants to break that record. Um, he'd rather do that with sane Senate candidates. Um, you know, Herschel Walker was not his pick. It was Donald Trump's. Blake Masters was not his pick. J.D. Vance was not his pick. Oz was not his pick. But uh, he went along with some of that stuff because he thought it was not worth having a fight over it and that, you know, it was going to be a good year or whatever. I, I don't, I'm not trying to mind meld with Mitch McConnell. My only point is, is that if, you treat Mitch McConnell as if he is, you know, the Pentaveret, the Egg Council, uh, you know, the Bohemian Grove, um, all of these things rolled into one. And he is, and anything that happens that's bad for MAGA is because of, you know, he's like the, the, the Kentucky version of George Soros. You're telling on yourself, you're not providing particularly interesting analysis. and. Um, I find it, you know, like a lot of amateurs in politics believe that stuff and that's all fine. I do find it interesting in much the same way, the places that have whole sections of their websites dedicated to David French, um, or to me, you know, uh, like they know better the, about Mitch McConnell, but they do see Mitch McConnell as an impediment to the kind of GOP that they want. So they don't mind blaming Mitch McConnell for all sorts of things that he's not responsible for. 
Um, but they know that he's not actually responsible for, you know, a lot of these crazy conspiracy theories things. There's just, they're just some people, I'm trying to think of other people that people become so fixated with and so obsessed with that it becomes, when they criticize them, it becomes more of a tell about them than it does about uh, the person they're obsessed with. And I'm sure when I'm done, when I hit stop on this recording, um, a bunch more will come to mind. But if you can think of some, you know, shoot them my way. Um, what else? Um, actually, you know, we're coming up on time and I got a lot to do. Um, so maybe I'll cut it off here. Um, I do want to thank uh, Klon Kitchen for subbing for me. Uh, I have not finished it yet. Sounds like you did a great job. Um, sounds like Luke Coffey is a, you know, so far it seems like a great guest and, um, and we're going to have more subs, um, on the remnant in October, um, in part just cause I've got a, a bunch of travel. Oh, including, so, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm always, I know I sound like some sort of shaggy dog, you know, rushing the pine barrens, um, hint dropper about other things going on in my life. And, um, I don't mean to necessarily, but I also always sort of find there's a weird thing about feeling dishonest with listeners and readers who I, I feel like at least in a conceptual way, you know, that I have this, this personal connection to. And, um, cause I, I do this stuff and you know, my actual voice, you know, it's funny when I actually, every now and then I'll have like drinks or coffee or lunch with somebody, um, who I've never met before. Um, and they'll say, this is really weird because it sounds like I'm on your podcast. This is, you know, this is basically the way I talk. Um, and, um, um, anyway, I, I, I don't mean to be, you know, uh, dramatic or elusive to this stuff. It just, I feel kind of dishonest when I'm dyspeptic or, or, or cranky or, 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 or excited and in a good mood. And I can't actually talk to people about why. Um, so, you know, I'll try to explain everything in due course. But one of the things that uh, has been bothering me um, for a long time or for a couple of years now is, you know, we, I, I had my 20th wedding anniversary in uh, August of 2021. And uh, that was when my daughter was starting school. So we didn't do anything then. In fact, I, I have a very bad record about anniversaries because the way we've always planned our Augusts is that we're on the road. Like we're, we're, we're usually like driving back from the Pacific Northwest or something and like finding a good spot um, to do, you know, at short notice, because we never know what kind of, what, what kind of time we're going to make and all that kind of stuff for anniversary dinners, particularly when you have your kid and two dogs with you. I just, I've, I've always been bad about it. And I really wanted to do something special for our 20th anniversary but it was in the middle of COVID and um, it was also this huge thing about getting our daughter to school. And so I dropped the ball again. And then last, this last August, I, we just couldn't for all sorts of reasons get something going. And so a couple of weeks ago, or I think just last week, uh, my wife and I, the fair Jessica, um, Jess was just like, we should just, we should just go to Europe. We should just do something, right? And um, in part because of just 
we've had a rough time. And, um, and so we decided we we're going to do like an anniversary thing. So anyway, we're going to go to, um, Istanbul and London at the end of the month. And I managed to do, um, almost all of the travel with frequent flyer miles, which is awesome because it's not like, um, I have this giant kitty of money to do this. Um, and, um, we're very excited about it. Um, and so I had asked, no offense to Klon, but I, uh, you know, Sarah has been around longer and I asked Sarah if she wanted to guest host for me on the remnant first. Um, cause I, I've never asked her and I, it just occurred to me recently. I was like, I used to ask David all the time to do it because David was like around and we were so small. He was the natural guy to sort of sub for me. And then, um, and then I started asking Starwalk because he was around, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized I never asked Sarah. So I asked Sarah and she really wanted to do it. But um, timing didn't work. And so I told her, look, at the end of the month, I'm going to be gone. So uh, you can do it then. And she was very excited. So who knows what she's going to do. You know, she's never really been on a big podcast like this before. Um, and she may not be able to handle the engine. Um, you know, this isn't like the golf cart of the Advisory Opinions podcast. This has some real heft to it. Um, but I think she'll do well. And, um, um, anyway, so there'll be other guest hosts. I hope it's okay. I I've never heard a real complaint about any guest host I've ever had on here. It, to the contrary, I often hear, you know, this was the best one ever, or I love this, or I wish he would do more of them and that kind of thing, which I am ego free about. I'm perfectly happy. It's not like I lack for opportunities to get my opinions and my takes out there. Um, so I'm happy to have people um, guest host for me from time to time. It's, it's a nice break for me. Um, and I th think they enjoy doing it, but anyway, I hear great things about Klon, um, Klon's episode. I'm only about 10 minutes into it. My apologies on that, but thank you to Klon for doing that. Some people suggested that he do a sort of, um, national security pod on his own. We've got a lot of that kind of stuff in planning stages behind the scenes. Um, right now, part of the problem is just bandwidth of being able to produce. We produce a, a lot of audio every week and we want to produce more and we have a lot of ambitious ideas for it. One of the things we're trying to do is hire more people in that department. Um, so, you know, stay tuned for all of that. But um, um, anyway, thanks again to him. Uh, Adam, our um, producer for this and <laughs> everything else these days, um, asked me to talk about Iran before... Uh, uh, I got started. I was like, what should I talk about? And he, I was like, now's the time or we're just going to make it up as we go. And he's like, you know, I've been waiting for someone to talk about Iran and, and he's right. And I'm not going to do it now because we're already at an hour 12 or whatever. Um, but uh, we should do something about uh, in depth about Iran. Um, I think it's a hugely important story. I feel like we're blowing another opportunity um, to do something about Iran the right way. Um, but I need to go to school a bit more on it too. I have nothing, nothing but sympathy for the people in the streets. And really, you know, I want to say, not, I don't want to say nothing but contempt for the people who are all invested in the permanence of the current regime there. Um, but I do have significant contempt for that position. Um, you know, the Iran deal stuff is all premised on the idea that we have no choice but to make peace with this radical, tyrannical, um, theocratic, crappy regime in Iran. 
And, you know, the realists will tell us that this is just the, um, that they are the representative of, of the kind of country that Iranians want. And I don't believe that. You know, this, again, this is one of the reasons why I'm still sort of pie-eyed and optimistic about China, is I don't believe that, that people actually want to live in tyrannical countries. Um, and I think the more prosperous and educated and bourgeois a country becomes, the less that they want to live under the, under the yoke of tyranny. And, um, uh, and I think it, it's sort of incumbent upon the, the leader of the free world to do what we can, where we can, within reason, uh, you know, as a prudential matter, to aid and abet the friends of liberty. And it um, doesn't mean you go to war everywhere for democracy, you know, because that, that's not prudential, that's not pragmatic, that's not within reason. But you, you're always pushing towards, you know, like my, my standard position on foreign policy for 25 years remains the same, even though I, I took some positions in the past that I think were wrong and all of that. But my basic view about foreign policy has always been um, you have to be idealistic about ends and realistic about means. And, um, you know, and we sometimes get that backwards in, in um, this country where there are a lot of people who think that like realism is an idealistic position and it's not. It's just that what they think is realism or was it restraint and all of these kinds of things is really a critique of the existing political order um, through the prism of foreign policy. Um, and there's just, there are other things going on among a lot of the sort of neo-isolationist types that really isn't about foreign policy. It's that foreign policy is the way in which we express certain numbers of our certain certain kinds of our values and our ideals in a tangible way so like if we're defending the liberal order if we're defending the democratic order if we're defending the forces of of democracy in various places that's a sign that we actually endorse those ideas on a really fundamental level and i think that there are some people who don't want us to endorse those ideas on a really fundamental level and so they have a problem with our foreign policy and, um, anyway, it's, it's a much more complicated, um, psychologically rich narcissism of small differences kind of thing. Um, that again, I said I was leaving, so I need to leave. Um, so we'll come to that another time. And, um, if you got an idea for a G file, well, you know, it doesn't matter because by the time you hear this, I'll have written it. Um, but I don't know what that's going to be either. And, um, I got to do TV this afternoon, which whatever. All right. So, um, oh, but you know, Hey, look, you know, one of the things you could do if you want more audio, if you want Klon or, you know, uh, you know, Adam, uh, O'Neill, our executive editor who has got serious foreign policy chops as well. Um, if you want us to have a full-time foreign policy podcast, um, with interesting guests and exciting things, one of the things you could do is become a dispatch member and subscribe. Um, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I think I need to write this pitch, but, um, you know, we're leaving Substack, we're leaving Substack really soon. Um, and um, I've always been more skeptical about the whole newsletter thing in general than Steve and, and, and a lot of people. Um, we're not abandoning the newsletter model or anything like that anytime soon um, because it works for us, for our purposes. 
But this idea that it was going to fundamentally transform journalism, I never bought. Um, it always felt kind of uh, blog, like the blogosphere circa 2008 in terms of the hype. Um, um, but, you know, so one of the reasons why I don't think it works is because you know, there's only so many subscriptions you can have before you're like, I have, I'm paying for too many one-person newsletters. And um, which is why I, I kind of suspect at some point Substack is going Substack is going to go to a get an all newsletter subscription for X amount of money, and then they'll just pay certain writers from their end. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. I like the guys at Substack, and I want them to succeed. But if you would pay ten bucks a month to read the G file, you know, you should be a subscriber. But if you wouldn't, if you'd only pay five, but you'd also pay five to be uh, for a Kevin Williamson newsletter, you should become, you should subscribe. If, you, if that's not enough and you were like, well, what about that Alapundit guy or David French in the Sunday Press or The Sweep by Sarah Isger, right? If you, if you value any of those things as worth 10 bucks a month, um, you get them all for 10 bucks a month. You essentially get, you know, all of our newsletters, including, you know, the full morning dispatch, which is um, really great for like feeling like you're up to speed on the news and you can get on with your day and not get sort of all worked up and, and click addicted. Um, and Declan and, and Esther do a fantastic job with that. Um, uh, and of course there's Scott Lincecum's newsletter on trade and economics and um, you just start going down the list. And then, of course, there's Klon with The Current and his stuff on tech and cybersecurity. And we're getting pretty close to basically playing a dollar a month for each of these newsletters, which is just, uh, look, I mean, even if, you, if, even if you think the G-File um, uh, is a net drain on humanity, that's fine. I think the rest are a really high value proposition. And you get them all, plus you make it possible for us to do more and exciting things with podcasting. Now, we want to start doing sort of long-form reported audio documentary stuff, sort of like Serial. Uh, that was a part of our bi original business plan. We want to do more meetups around the country. Anyway, the way to do it is by becoming a member or getting people you know to become a member. Um, and it's not, I, I honestly, and I mean this sincerely, I think it is arguably the biggest value for your dollar in journalism today. Um, to get, you know, Chris Starwalt, I didn't even mention Chris Starwalt, Chris Starwalt, Kevin Williamson, David French, uh, Nick Cataggio, aka Alapundit, Sarah Isger, The Morning Dispatch, The G File, uh, Scott Lincecum, and we got more coming. Uh, you know, all for 10 bucks a month. That's, those all would be valuable, um, and I think, well, you know, G-File accepted, obviously. Um, those would all be worthwhile, you know, $10 a month Substack subscriptions on their own. You get the whole bundle for 10 bucks a month um, or $100 a year. And it uh, just seems to me it's a, like if you're interested in this stuff, you should at least try one of the free trials or whatever. They come up all the time. Um, we try really hard not to sort of like change the, the math on subscriptions because we sort of want to be honest in all, all this stuff. We give, we have discounts when we bring in some new writers like we do with all and all that. But anyway, just seems like a real value to me. And, um, if you think about it, 
as getting essentially a $10 monthly product for, I don't know, a buck a piece, which is what it kind of boils down to, um, uh, seems obviously worth it. And there's also like the Dispatch Live stuff and there's all these other things. It's, you know, floor wax and, and dessert topping for as far as the eye can see. Oh, geez. One last thing about the migration, the leaving Substack, whatever. Um, I really need to tell you. That's happening really soon. It's like literally um, happening, um, if all goes well, next week. And um, I should give you a little heads up. We're hoping it's not going to be bumpy. Having been through a lot of website redesigns in my life, um, I'm pretty confident it will be bumpy. I mean, this isn't just a redesign. This is a whole migration. It's complicated. We're working really, really hard so that you don't notice all the complications, but some are probably going to show up. Like you might have to re-log in to the new dispatch site. Um, you might have to reach out to customer service about this, that, or the other thing. Um, but we're going to try really, really hard. I promise you, we're trying really, really hard that this is going to be as seamless and turnkey for the end user, um, uh, for the members, as conceivably possible. Um, but you should be aware it's coming. You know, look, if you, if you stop getting your, um, your various newsletters, please check out the spam folder. Um, please, you know, let us know. We're going to have people ready to fix it. But this is, I mean, it's, it's been very stressful on the back end. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me of that old phrase, uh, you know, when, about moving, you know, three moves equals one fire in terms of stress. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> three redesigns, never mind a migration slash redesign for, for slash brand new website launch, um, I don't know, equals uh, one bankruptcy and one self-immolation. Um, anyway, it's, it's a stressful thing. We got guys working around the clock on it. Uh, but we really want it to be uh, as turnkey as possible for you guys. Um, but be on the lookout for it. If you get a note from the dispatch saying, here's what you need to do or whatever, follow it. We apologize. We just, this was for any inconveniences, this is just necessary. It was necessary as a business proposition. It was a net, it was necessary for all sorts of reasons. We wish the guys at Substack well, but we, um, the pirate skiff, um, needs to be upgraded to, I don't know, a galleon or whatever. And that means we have to go to new waters and, um, um, we're grateful for our time at Substack and we're grateful to your patience and your consideration during these challenging times. So with that, uh, thank you for listening, and um, I'll see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.